Hello and thanks for clicking. You're listening to Ancient Bloggers Podcast. You can find links to my YouTube channel, articles, Facebook page and such on my website, ancientblogger.com. Obviously I'm on Twitter as well, at ancientblogger, so come and say hi. In this podcast I'll be looking at what happens exactly when Odysseus returns home. Yeah, I know there's the whole thing with the suitors, but what does it tell us exactly? And why does Odysseus act in quite an unusual fashion, which includes pranking his dad? Linked to this, believe it or not, is the concept of being an exile, and I'll be looking at what it meant exactly in archaic Greece. As we'll see, the makeup of the Greek side and the Trojan War resemble the Dirty Dozen in more ways than you might think. Finally, a Where Are There Now piece on some of the characters from Greek and Roman myth. I stumbled into this topic following my last podcast when I included Argos, the faithful hound of Odysseus. I then got to reread the final part of the Odyssey and, well, started to ask some questions. So I'm going to look at the part of the poem from when Odysseus returns home and what Homer might be commenting on through his use of these suitors as well as how Odysseus is portrayed. It's arguably one of the most famous endings in a Greek myth. After spending many years returning to Ithaca, Odysseus arrives and dispatches the suitors who have little or no understanding of the term being in the friend zone. Why did they die? Well, the Odyssey would have been a huge disappointment if Odysseus had returned and they'd all just had a cup of tea and a chat. Talk about an anticlimax. The story demanded a bloody ending, and a bloody ending it got. Except the death of the suitors isn't really the ending of it all, as we'll see. Before we meet the suitors, or indeed any mortals, the gods are sat around moaning about being moaned about. More specifically is the case of Aegisthus, and it's being discussed by Zeus. In Greek myth, Agamemnon returned after the war at Troy to be murdered by his wife Clytemnestra, who'd taken in Aegisthus as a new partner. Eventually, Orestes, Agamemnon's son, murders them both. Citing this myth from the outset is important as it prepares the ground for the suitors to be considered as the bad guys, those that would kill and depose a rightful ruler, even though they really haven't done anything yet. The knock-on from this is to create tension. If this was a film, you'd see a clip of the bomb with the timer counting down. Odysseus has to get home soon and defuse this situation. I also think this story is important as it contains within it a discussion concerning the nature of revenge and its consequences, something I'll talk about a bit later. Interestingly, Zeus makes no mention of the suitors early on, and you might expect this from the deity associated with hosting and being a good guest. But Zeus doesn't feature a great deal, and it's left to Athena who acts as chief stirrer in all things relating to the suitors to get things going. Somewhere, there's a Greek vase featuring a holding a massive spoon while standing next to Odysseus and near the suitors. It just hasn't been found yet. The demand of the suitors is made quite clear early on when they have a debate with Telemachus concerning what their problem is. They want him to accept his father's death, and for his mother Penelope to marry one of them. In fairness, they want this done formally and in the correct tradition, as it were. No shotgun weddings here. Penelope has to return to her father's house and allow him to choose a selection of suitors, with Penelope being given some input, if not the final say. Whether this would have involved a rose ceremony is merely a tempting tangent. Family squabbles, long-winded speeches and questionable music sets are already ongoing features of where the suitors feast, so it's not as if they have an itch only a wedding reception can scratch. The need for a wedding means they can declare it is his finally gone, and the current political vacuum which his absence has caused can be over. 
And this is the crux of the matter. Much like small dogs, the Greeks of Homer's time hated any sort of vacuum. In fairness, this is the case today. The cornerstone of any political success is stability. Pick up a paper or read an article and you find criticism of a leader or of a party couched in these terms. They are weak, undecided or divided on any sure course of action. In short, unstable. The political structure in Ithaca, which is experiencing this exact vacuum, is a monarchy or something like a monarchy. Odysseus is king, yet there are aspects to it which don't point to the type of monarchy I'm that familiar with. For a start, Telemachus is stated as his heir, yet Telemachus himself acknowledges that he might simply remain head of his household, as opposed to securing the crown. This seems contradictory. Surely, if Odysseus is dead, he should inherit. Well, yes, if you're looking at the type of monarchy that we understand. I'm speculating here, but what I see isn't a type of monarchy where one family rule interrupted based on succession. Instead, a collection of noble families who are competing for the top spot. If you're the rule of the dominant family, then you're also king. If your family can hold on to that position, then your heir will inherit. It's more an opportunistic oligarchy than a simple monarchy. This might explain why Telemachus isn't automatically proclaimed king. With Ithaca lacking as king, the suitors, representing the leading noble families, sense blood. They even view Telemachus as a threat. When he announces he's going to Pylos to seek news of his father, it's thought he might actually be going abroad to get foreign support. Thus we could possibly conclude that being the son of Odysseus doesn't give him an automatic unchallenged right. More so if he doesn't seem capable of supporting it. But what does this mean exactly? Well, I'm suggesting that Homer isn't depicting the suitors as inherently all evil. Here's a situation, due in part to Odysseus' absence, which has seen a challenge issued to the house of Odysseus. How the suitors go about formalising that challenge and staking their respective claims might be where we find fault with them. Their continual feasting at Odysseus' palace seems to be the main criticism made of them. As one TV show has it, they are playing the great game. This notion of the suitors being in some way justified in their pursuit of the kingship can be found in a later, somewhat bizarre episode, where they meet Agamemnon in the underworld, shortly after being killed by Odysseus. Agamemnon, curious as to what they are doing there, inquires as to how they all ended up being so dead. Amphimedon speaks on behalf of the dead suitors, and describes the events which led to them. Much of what he says is entirely reasonable. If we allow further indulgence with the great game analogy, allow it to be followed into a sporting context, he comes across as a good loser. Odysseus was better, deserved to win, yet criticism is reserved for Penelope for stalling the necessary political process. It's Penelope who had announced her husband's death, yet would not concede to what must have been a standard expectation, namely a new king or right of accession. The idea that the game or what the suitors did was in some way wrong, is not mentioned, or not even alluded to. You might have expected Agamemnon to castigate, or remind the suitors of their crime, but not a word of that in that direction. Instead, he's off on his favourite subject, the wrongdoings of women, and in particular, his wife. Now, there might be a reason for this, other than an Agamemnon reminding us of the friend who just will not get over it. The story of Agamemnon's murder is the same story Zeus is mulling over at the beginning of the poem, and I sense it's used for much the same reason, namely to provide the listener with what may have happened had Odysseus not acted. Perhaps this was needed, as you may have start feeling sympathy for the suitors. There's also a neat contrast between Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife, and Penelope. 
One being disloyal, the other being far more committed. Penelope's loyalty and refusal to move on is flagged as a great virtue. This can only be really the case if it wasn't the norm. I'm not saying there were hordes of disloyal wives, although we'll see that later is a bit of a common trope. What I am saying is that Penelope's loyalty, in the context of political loyalty, was a standout feature in an age where there was a fair amount of political instability and backbiting. Homer's time saw kings, tyrants, oligarchies and varieties thereof plying their trade with various degrees of success. One thing was for sure, they weren't often the most stable of regimes. So perhaps Homer deliberately plucks the suitors from the good versus bad trope and uses them to offer a comment on politics and the political situations in general. It's even better if his audience saw this theme and felt it relevant in their own time as opposed to the mythical past. Where does this leave Odysseus? I've spent a while discussing the Odyssey without mentioning him too much. Odysseus's actions in killing the suitors is necessary, as, as we've covered. Yet it does have implications far beyond giving Agamemnon several more shoulders to cry on. By killing the suitors, he may have himself committed a crime. When having a father-son chat about homicide with Telemachus, as you do, Odysseus says, In any community where a man kills someone, even someone who has no friends at all to avenge him, he goes into exile, abandoning his family and native land. But we have killed the best of Ithaca's young men, the mainstay of the state. Understand this. The motif is of revenge and its effects, something which was explored by Aeschylus in his trilogy Oresteia. The story he used was the one which keeps cropping up, namely that of Agamemnon and his son's pursuit of revenge for him. The tables seem to have turned, and now it's the families of the suitors who are citing a right to vengeance. Eupithes is given as their mouthpiece, the father of one of the suitors, and where Odysseus referenced exile for homicide, Eupithes makes the link again, stating that he expects Odysseus to leave Ithaca for his crimes. In my eyes, Eupithes rapidly becomes Odysseus's most dangerous foe. True, he doesn't have a single eye in a huge club, or an even more dangerous cookbook, but he's dangerous in other ways. There's the fact that he has the ear of the people. When he pleads to the assembled group outside the palace, they listen, and even when challenged, the majority stick with him. Scarier still is Homer referring to him as a great persuader. There's also the slightest whiff of legitimacy in his claims. His points are cogent and well-made. How dare Odysseus slaughter the suitors, especially given his none-too-impressive track record with all those who went to fight for him and never made it back, a point at which I will consider later. Up in Olympus, the threat is well understood, with Athena panicking and Zeus backtracking and saying that it's nothing really to do with him. However, he does offer a solution which any parent driving in a car with squabbling kids will appreciate. It's simple. Just tell them both you really don't care who's right and wrong. Just shut up, as we'll be there in a minute. Now, how do we interpret Zeus's somewhat passive nature on this? Is it because he's already said at the start that there's a cause and effect to how men act? Thus, the suitors are masters of their own fate. Is he simply not bothered? Or is it because it's too messy in terms of who's right and wrong for him to get involved with? The showdown is set as the two groups meet. Though it's not Odysseus who diffuses the situation with Eupithes. It's Odysseus's father, Laertes, who makes a point which stops Eupithes in his tracks. The point is actually that of a spear thrown by Laertes after being cajoled into doing so by Athena. That's not exactly what Zeus wanted though, is it? He wanted both sides to be told to hug and make up. Not for Athena to get out a spoon and start stirring again, and she's not stopping there. 
causing the party of suitors to flee, she's about to let Odysseus and his men upon them, but Zeus intervenes with a thunderbolt, perhaps as much to warn his daughter to stop as the inevitable slaughter. And it works, as she causes a truce between the two sides. And that's it, the end of the poem. Like me, you probably thought that after the suitors defeated, it all ended happily, which is pretty much as far from the case as possible. How can we weigh Odysseus in all of this? I don't find him an attractive character. Up until his return, he displays nous, quick thinking, and a way of solving problems which in modern management meetings would be cited as outside the box. The Odysseus of travelling fame is held up and examined in a domestic capacity as a ruler, and he seems to come up a bit short. For example, he loses his ability to problem-solve awkward situations. It's apparent from Eupithes' comments that there's already some grievance over a generation of men who never returned after following him to war. One of the side effects of war at this time, and up until the professional armies of the Roman period, was the population distortion which warfare created. Often it was citizen males involved. You remove a large percentage of them from any population in antiquity, and you create an array of problems. Odysseus' solution in the face of this i.e. to kill more citizen males of the leading families, was in effect rubbing salt into the wound of a dead suitor. When faced with a genuine threat in the form of Eupithes, the end result is the death of that individual, and in a manner which is unchallenged, unchecked, and unreasoned with. Where was the Odysseus who might reason and debate with him? You also wonder why Odysseus doesn't face him. Is it because Athena senses the threat he poses? Or is it that if it were reduced to a debate, Odysseus would be found somewhat lacking as he sought to fully justify his actions. Your guess is as good as mine, probably better in fact. The above is a somewhat gruesome crystallisation of Odysseus and his behaviour when he turns home, but it doesn't stop there. Just ask Penelope and his father. Both Penelope and Laertes are involved in recognition scene, something not limited to just the Odyssey. Yet Laertes' experience of it seems, well, a bit weird. Consider the situation. Odysseus has returned, he's killed the suitors, and now he visits his father. You might imagine that he'd greet his father with aplomb, yet he seems distrustful of Laertes and plays what seems like a really cruel trick on him by pretending to be someone else who has encountered Odysseus. But Odysseus is only part way through his tale before Laertes starts to exhibit real signs of distress. And Odysseus decides to stop with the pretense and tell him who he, who he is. Why exactly does he do this? Laertes is refer referenced earlier in the poem as quite a pathetic figure. There's no real danger from him. Or is there? Perhaps an earlier version of the myth had Laertes as the head of a particular group. Or he may be representative of a type of legitimising body. Perhaps a council of elders who, though not offering much in the way of military threat, still needed to be assessed as to where their loyalties were. It's also been commented that the recognition scene with Laertes was required as Odysseus had gone through the same ritual with his wife and son, and this is a way of him being realised again as father, husband and son. And I've always wondered what the relationship was between Laertes and Telemachus. In Odysseus' absence, he offers no real support to Telemachus, and when Odysseus meets his own mother in the underworld, she comments on how Laertes had largely removed himself and lived a life bordering on the impoverished. In the underworld, Odysseus also speaks of Tiresias, and the prophet informs him of what will happen, and also includes what will become of him. Odysseus won't be settling in Ithaca after killing the suitors. Instead, he's required to go off travelling again. He'll die of old age, but it doesn't seem that it'll happen at Ithaca. Odysseus drops this bomb on Penelope almost immediately after going through the recognition scene with her. 
Penelope seems fine with it, which raises numerous questions. The cynic in me wonders whether she really cares too much about Odysseus, and instead welcomes his return as a way of restoring political order, ideally with Telemachus now shored up as king. Odysseus's need to move on is mentioned as a prerequisite by Tiresias as part of his destiny. However, in the earlier homicide father-son chat, he's implied that he'll have to move on as a result of his actions, and as I mentioned, there's Eupithes' expectation of it. This gives me a nice opportunity to raise the subject of exile in the Archaic period, as it's something which occurs a fair amount in Homer. Odysseus mentions exile earlier than his chat with Telemachus. As soon as he lands back in Ithaca, he's greeted by Athena, who's in disguise, and proceeds to pretend to be an exile from Crete. This is perfectly sensible. He's back and doesn't want to be give away anything of his identity for obvious reasons. Yet his opening line to Athena is, I am an exile. I'd killed Idomeneus' son. Why give this information? It's quite the definition of oversharing. Yet this was standard fare in Homer. Take the Iliad, where a number of characters are self-confessed exiles. There's Phileus, Phoenix, and Polyphides, all exiles because of a family falling out. More concerning are Tlepolemus, Medon, Lycrophon, Epigis, Patroclus, Etolion, Theoclomenos. That's easy for me to say. All of these are exiles following homicide, and in the case of Patroclus, as a boy, he killed another boy over a game of dice. It seems Agamemnon was employing very much a dirty dozen recruitment policy for his army. Being exiled after killing another does make some sense, though. In a society where tribes and families exist, a murder might cause quite a fuss, perhaps leading to blood feuds. There's also the pollution of the event to consider, or what is referred to as miasma. Someone who killed another might find themselves stigmatised, and required to leave the group or society to, to seek redemption in some other fashion. The more practical aspect, namely a blood feud or vengeance demanded, might be settled another way. When trying to persuade Achilles to return to battle in the Iliad, Ajax pushes the idea that gifts and money can just about solve any problem. More directly, Ajax refers to a fine which a murderer might pay to the family of the victim. This may be a more pragmatic solution. This theme is even present on the famous Shield of Achilles. One of the scenes depicts arbitration between a murderer and the family of the victim, the murderer declaring he had paid the, paid the amount publicly. Perhaps Odysseus knew from the start that he'd have to leave Ithaca for his actions. If so, it's that tension between personal and political justice which is so expertly pursued in the Oresteia, where Orestes' murder of his mother to avenge his father is weighed and debated. Now, as mentioned earlier, a bit more fun. There's only some death, which in ancient Greek or Roman myth is the very definition of fun. One of the points I've made concerning the Odyssey is how the end isn't often the end. As mentioned, many think the Odyssey ends with the death of the suitors, and this got me thinking. What happened to the heroes from myth after their adventures, a sort of after-they-were-famous angle? The results are, well, you can decide. We'll start with Odysseus, and you might wonder what happened to him after the Odyssey. Well, I'll tell you anyway. According to Tiresias in the poem, he was meant to go away on more travels. Yet we have record of one ancient poem called the Telegony, which offers a different view. Sadly, it's lost, but according to it, Odysseus did travel around and then returned. And here's about a chap called Telogenus, who's arrived on the island and is up to all sorts of mischief. Needless to say, he goes out and fights him. But Odysseus is killed by this spear tipped with a sting of a stingray, which belongs to Telogenus. And Odysseus recognises him as the son he had by Circe. As you might expect, or 
possibly didn't, Telogenes then goes on to marry Penelope. Another Greek hero from Troy, Diomedes, possibly one of my favourite characters in the Iliad. After the Trojan War, he returns to Argus and finds that his wife had been unfaithful. More to the point, he's been usurped, and often we find this, these two things happening at the same time. That's the political instability thing we're referring to, and it's the thing that Odysseus was obviously very scared about. Out of a job, and out of a throne, Diomedes travels to southern Italy, and he founds a number of cities down there. But one legend says that on his death, all of the albatrosses got together and started singing. And this is where the family name from albatrosses comes from. They are called the Diomedae. And it's possible, as well, as a bit of a nice ending, he was made a god, as Pindar mentions this. We move from southern Italy now to more central Italy, and it's Romulus. Romulus was always the chap to call a spade a spade, especially when he's beating his brother to death with it. Livy has it that after a reign of 37 years, he disappeared in a whirlwind during a sudden and violent storm. There were rumours that he'd been murdered by the nobles, and that his body had been secretly dismembered and buried by them on their estates. So either Romulus was the victim of a coup, or he encountered a tin man, scarecrow, and cowardly lion way before Dorothy Gale did. Yep, that was Dorothy's surname there. Bit more trivia for you. We move now to Athens, and another founding hero. Theseus, well, I won't go too far into what Theseus got up to after he killed the Minotaur, but it included indecent behaviour on a grand scale and imprisonment in the underworld. Truly a reminder that politicians never change. At the end, Athenians finally got tired of him and effectively kicked him out of Athens. He then retired to Skyros, where the king there took him on a tour of the island. The end of the tour was literally just that. Perhaps concerned that Theseus might cause more harm than good, the king had him thrown off a cliff. We're down to the last two now, and if you've had any chance to listen to my podcast, we need to talk about Dumbo, the war elephant antiquity, you may remember what happened to Pyrrhus, a general of some renown beating the Romans in Italy and causing mayhem in Sicily. The problem with Pyrrhus was that, much like Theseus, he wasn't very good at ruling. In a siege against Argos, he decided to take the city by surprise and sneak in some elephants. You heard that correctly, sneak elephants. In comic fashion, he found out the elephants were higher than the gates, so he had to take the turrets off them in order to get them in. Have you ever seen the Bond film where 007 sneaks an elephant into the base in the volcano? No, you didn't, because it never happened. Because if you read the small print on any elephant, it states not to be used with sneaking. The alarm duly went up and battle ensued. Fighting in a city or a large town was always dangerous for the attacker. They don't know the street layout and face danger from all angles, particularly from up above and it was normal for inhabitants to take to the roof and pelt anything they had down on the enemy. According to story, one woman saw a son being attacked and threw a tile down on his attacker, who dropped dead. Thus ended the life of Pyrrhus. We'll finish with a chap who didn't meet a gory end and seemed to have ended his days quite nicely. I'm talking of Menelaus, brother Agamemnon and husband of Helen. But just perhaps things weren't really that rosy. The whole Helen running off with Paris in the ten-year war with Troy can't have been a subject anyone wanted to raise without it being one of those really awkward moments. As topics go, it's pretty huge, though. Anyone visiting the king or in his court must have to think very quickly not to mention anything which might reference it. And there we have it. I'm currently working on a Halloween-themed podcast, and I've already found clinking chains and even a zombie. Well, a, a sort of zombie. So hopefully you could keep an ear out for it. If you want to come and say hello, find me on Twitter, Ancient Blogger, and check out my website for articles picks my youtube channel that's ancientblogger.com and until the next time which will most likely be halloween take care
infamy, infamy, they've all got it in for me. 